Many of us revere the masters. We hold the scholar-doctor in high esteem, but most of us, I suspect, are garden-variety acupuncturists. There's no shame in that. In fact, for myself, I strive to be a competent journeyman practitioner. Truth be told, I'm not sure that I want to go through the transformative fires that produce a master. Zhang Zhongjing, he lived through a terrible time of war, sickness, and death. Li Shizhen, I suspect he was compulsive and driven. And Qin Wei, well, he ended up on the wrong end of the Cultural Revolution. Being a solid and helpful practitioner and still having time for full and varied life is something worth shooting for. And that is what Daniel and I get into in this conversation. I've added this one to the series of conversations that I wanted to share with you while I'm taking some time to rest and restore because I feel like Daniel touches on some ways of thinking about practice that you're not going to get in a practice management class. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. 
I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one month grace period on your new Jane account. I always appreciate his thoughtful perspective on things. And now let's get into this conversation on being a good, solid, competent, and hopefully happy journeyman or woman practitioner. Hey friends, welcome back to Geological. I've got Daniel Schulman with me again today. We had a conversation a few weeks ago, and it inspired us to sit down again and do a little, well, it's, it's kind of an experiment today. Both of us have about 20 years of experience at this game now, which I don't know how you count things. I'm going to call it mid-career. And one of the things that came up in our last conversation is about how you stay open, how you stay curious, and about how you work really as what I'm going to call a journeyman. You know, we venerate the masters, but you know what? Most of us aren't going to be masters. However, I think we got a good solid shot at being really skilled and helpful journeymen and journeywomen. And so I'm back here with Daniel. We're just going to chew on this theme and see where it goes. Daniel, good morning. Great to be here again. It was really fun talking with you last time. And, uh, you know, before we started rolling tape here, we were, we were starting to talk a little bit about this subject, about that most of us aren't going to be masters and that it's okay to simply be, I don't even want to say simply, but to be a good, solid, you know, worker of the craft. And you were saying something about that we've got different streams. I live and work in a fairly remote corner of North America, so I don't have a professional community in person. So most of my exposure, to be frank up front, is, you know, through online discussions. But it, it seems to me our profession right now, there, there's at least two streams that have a lot of cachet that are really grabbing the, the attention. Uh, one is, you know, the whole, the whole notion of, of, of scholar. And that's heavily tilted towards, we all, we all know that, that the people who are translating, who read Chinese, who have, you know, they're really, they're very seriously and scholarly engaged in the scholarly pursuit of rigorous translation and that kind of thing. And then the other stream that's, it picked up steam maybe 20 years ago, then it kind of died out. And now it's really ramping up again is it are, are the people who are very focused on 
um, integration, integrative medicine, uh, mm-hmm. and revisiting now with a whole armamentarium of, of arguments and, and literature and research, the whole, you know, the evidence quote, and this is in air quotes, the evidence base, you know, for, for what we do in acupuncture, certainly, if not herbal medicine, the evidence base through, you know, mechanisms, biochemistry, um, physiology, these mo- in, in a modern context. Those two streams, I, I feel, have a lot of cachet right now, a lot of power, a lot of sway, and in, in certainly in the online discussion scene. And and I think they're both fantastic. I mean, I want to say from the get-go, I, I'm not, I, I don't uh, poo-poo or, or dismiss those two streams. I think they're fantastic. But, uh, but we have to be a little careful that they don't overwhelm us uh, in their influence, because like I'm in neither of those streams and I can get into why, but, um, but I, as you said, I think there's a very important stream for those of us who are engaged clinically on a day-to-day basis and the real, you know, on the ground, nuts and bolts, day-to-day clinical encounters with our patients. But I would say we're doing that in a scholarly way too. But by scholarly, I don't mean head in the books scholarship. I mean, doing it with critically aware and reflective uh, attention. No day is routine for those of us who fit the the category I'm talking about. Every day is a new open inquiry. Every day is a continual, ongoing, perpetual re-examination of our assumptions what we think we're doing. Are we really doing what we think we're doing? Mm. What about this? What about that? You know, really like perpetual, full awareness. I, I, I suspect the people who developed this medicine were practicing in exactly that way. Yeah. And I, and I you know, it's very difficult to get into this discussion in my experience because, you know, everybody says, you know, people are very quick to say, well, I practice that. We all practice that way. What are you talking about? And, and there's a very quick, uh, everything gets defensive very quickly. And, you know, I don't want to go there. But I don't think we all practice that way. Yeah. Well, I agree, but it's a hard topic to, cr- hard nut to crack. We're going to take a shot of cracking that nut because sometimes I'll hear people talking about protocols, right? Like, so in the, um, Right. In the fertility world, for example, on occasion, I'll get a phone call and someone will say, I'm, you know, I'm working with a reproductive endocrinologist. I see you're an acupuncturist and I want to come in and have the Swedish protocol done. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I know there's good reasons for it. Uh, I usually try to refer them to someone else because it's, it's not the way I work. I mean, it's just not, I mean, I can do it, but, but you just need a technician to do that. Exactly. Really. Exactly. Yeah, um, but I live in a place kind of like you, even though it, I'm not uh, not out on the edge. I'm actually right in the middle of the country. But it, you know, there's not a lot of acupuncturists here, so you know, sometimes you know, sometimes I'll do that work. But it's but I know it's not the work that enlivens me. So there are protocols, and if you look on certain like Facebook groups, you'll see, well, you know, what's the protocol for this or the protocol for that, and 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 I get it. And especially if you might be working in an integrative setting or if you're working in a place where, you know, the evidence based and, and there's, you know, certain steps that usually work. And so you usually follow them. I get it that there's a place to use that and to practice that way. I'll be honest. I actually have days where I practice that way. If I have a day, you know, because the kind of awareness I'm talking about 
it requires a certain uh, you, you need to you need to be really in a certain place. Yes, you do, and you're not in it every day, are you? I have days where I'm I can recognize at the get go of the day early in the morning. Okay, I am not in that place. Mm-hmm. That's a possibility. The other possibility is when I get a patient who just so overwhelms me with their complexity that I just have to say, okay, what's a protocol I know for you know knee pain? Because I'm just going to do that because I just I have no other way to make sense of this person. Yeah, there's some fallbacks that we can use. Hopefully, they help to clarify the situation. Often they do. After a few weeks, it all becomes clear. You know. But it, I understand what you're talking about here, and I suspect many listeners are, are shaking their head up and down in a yes sort of way. There are days, for whatever reason, we're kind of on it, right? You can slide into that river and swim. Yeah, and often you aren't even aware you're on it until you retroactively realize, holy cow, I was in the zone today. I know, and then there's other days, and and here's when I know I'm really lost. Here's when I know, be careful, go simple, don't try anything tricky today, because the thought that comes to my mind is, well, according to the theory, I should, dot, 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 and and when when that goes through my mind, it's like, okay, you don't know what you're doing right now. I agree with you. And it helps to know... When we don't, I think it helps to know when we don't know. Totally. What about, do you have anything that you do when you know you're not quite in the zone? Do you have any way, you know, I mean, sometimes it's just the day and, and the best you can do is do no harm. I mean, that's, I think that's just the truth of the situation, but sometimes you can kind of pull it back on track. Do you have any ways of things that you do? Yeah, I'm afraid I don't. I just kind of hang out and wait. I had a meditation teacher once say to me something so profound, you know, I still kind of tremble whenever I even say it or think about it, but it's so true. It's like, you can do all the work you need to do, but that will only get you, you know, to the church door. And, and when God invites you in, is, is out of your hands. You know, in, in other words, we're talking about, you know, preparation. There you go. And grace. Preparation and grace. Uh, I think it's really true. And you know, those, I mean, I, I think we can ramp up the opportunities for grace. Like we, we have to be a, the thing is, I think, I, I think moments of grace pass by us constantly, but we're so unaware that we don't even see them. So we get invited in, but we're not even aware the door just got open. We didn't hear the invitation. We have to do our work to be available for the insights. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and you know, I think this is part of the crux of this, this question I threw out earlier and really my inquiry at this point in my practice of how to be a darn good journeyman. Yeah. Right. And some of it is that kind of practice. Can I be open to those moments, especially when I've had some moments where I've not been open? Like you say, that grace is constantly being invited. Is there a way that I can step out of whatever blah, blah, blah I've got going on Yeah. so that I, I catch a whiff on it? I think it's presenting itself to us far more often than we realize. How do you know when it's been presented? How do you know when an opportunity has sort of ripened? (laughs) Well, in my experience, uh, it's always after the fact. You know, it's always on my way home or even an hour later, I'll go, okay, that was cool. Mm. I never know in the moment. It's afterwards that. I can see, okay, that was, that was profound. What, do, what happened there was profound. 
And of course, then the other thing is then your ego wants to grab that oh, and say, man. okay, I want to replicate that. <laughs> and look at me. Look what I did. Yeah. And, you know, you've got a one second window to appreciate what happened and then drop it. <laughs> one second window to appreciate it and drop it. You know, I want, yeah. I mean, even the next time that same person comes in, you know, don't go there. And this gets to what we were talking about earlier. And, you know, again, this is a, this t- can be such a delicate conversation. And I don't want to rain on the parade of anybody else. There's room for all of us. I'm just speaking for myself. But I, I've been in practice 20 years. I, left, I got out of school in 1999 full of protocols. You know, do this for knee pain and that for back pain and this for fertility. And uh, with some refinement, like, okay, for back pain, if this, this, and this, and that, if this, this, and this, it was a little more complex, but still essentially protocols. And, you know, from the get-go, I've had a almost a, a visceral allergy to that. I've just felt strongly that can't be the heart of this medicine. It, it just can't be. And I've even read, there's classics, there's old books, there's Chinese medicine database. I have some of their books and they're just full of recipes and protocols from you know a long, long time ago. So I'm not talking about some, you know, that I just think it's new people who don't get that. I suspect this has been a, a, a tension in our profession since the beginning. Or maybe just a tension as a human being between doing what we know has worked and being attentive to what's unfolding in the moment. Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. Um, I know that personally, what I'm attracted to, why I'm in this profession, what gets me going, what excites me, is a certainty that embedded in, in the whole acupuncture channel system is an opportunity to get to know the patient at a much deeper level. And when I use the word deeper, I know that's that's just a loaded word. Why is that a loaded word? You know, that's a big question. Our culture is currently at a state where a certain proportion of our culture are very averse to hierarchy. They're very, very averse to the notion that one thing is deeper, better, more profound, more intense than one other thing. It's called flatlining. A lot of people are very driven to flatline everything. We're all equal. You know, it's it's kind of like, it's like everything in Chinese medicine, right? There's healthy and unhealthy in relation to everything. So, So there's a healthy approach to the problems with hierarchy, the problems with Equal inequality, but there's a, there's an overcompensation. Some people I perceive are involved in where they've gone too far. That we need everything needs to be equal. Nothing can be better or deeper or more profound, and that's what right, we get into trouble there. So I think it hits that nerve. But um, anyway, getting back. So I I've been driven from the beginning by a. a I come from a long line of high functioning, internationally renowned scientists. My father, my uncle, uh, these are very, very cerebral people. And when I got into acupuncture school, I was going to do Chinese herbal medicine and, and TCM and everything. And I just happened to go into a school that had Kiko Matsumoto and Japanese palpatory acupuncture going on there. And I was so attracted to it. And I know the reason I was attracted to it was that I think in my own personal journey, my own agenda is to rebalance the over-cerebral. And I was just more drawn to acupuncture that was based on just palpating the patient, getting my, my, my brain out of the way, and finding out what's going on here and at some other level. And 
the more I practiced, the, the more I came to be aware that even symptoms, they're so misleading. They're so dangerous to get hung up on. You know, I know some people think that's horrible. Your patient's in here because they want X, their back fixed. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. And I'm not saying I don't pay attention to the symptom, but as we all know, you just have to practice Chinese medicine for five years. And if you're awake, you know anything can be anything. Anything. Constipation can be anything. Kidney, spleen, liver, heart, gallbladder. can be anything. Asthma can be anything. Knee pain can be anything. I don't know a symptom that can't be anything. So then you're faced with this. Actually, at some point, it, it became a crisis for me. It's like, oh, my God, you know. A patient comes in, they, they're paying you money, they want results, and you, when, if you get really aware that anything can be anything, you suddenly you panic. It's like, what do I hang my hat on here to move forward? And I always just went back to palpation. First, through the Kiko Matsumoto approach, which God, I'm so thankful I learned that. You know, it just gave me something to hang my hat on regardless of what the patient was saying, regardless of all the protocols that I had running around in my mind. And I found that it would give you a ground to stand on. Yeah. And it felt to me like it was more reliable. It felt to me like it was something more reliable than going with their symptoms or a protocol. And so I practiced that for years and years and years and years. And then I, you know, then I, of course, I read and followed the whole Wang Ju Yi stream of palpation with Jason Robertson's translation work. And, uh, and, and then I, I did um, a Neijing class online twice over with Ed Neal, which got me into taking Ren Ying Sun co-pulses, uh -huh. uh, which was a whole other new fascinating exploration for me. It, it actually got me into that, you know, really critically look at that whole question. We all face this, you know, you learn a style, you have an approach, and then you go take a class and learn some new stuff. And then you come back to your clinic and you say, how do I, what do I do now? Do I stick with my old stuff? How do I merge these two things? How do I make a decision with each patient of whether I'm going to do Tan or Tung or Matsumoto or Ed Neal or, you know, and I wrote a paper about this in Journal of Chinese Medicine, some, some actual thinking about how to integrate and synthesize multiple understandings. But anyway, that just got, all of that stuff just deepened my palpation. It deepened my palpation. And it merged, for me, in my own journey, it merged Kika Matsumoto, Master Nagano kind of palpation approaches with the six levels. Okay, so now... And that opened up something, a very interesting avenue of inquiry in my clinic, where now I really feel like I'm palpating the six levels. Tai Yin, Xiao Yin, Jui Yin, Yang, Ming, Xiao Yang, Tai Yang. I, not only have I, have I personally chosen in 20 years, over 20 years, to, to significantly reject protocols and focus on symptoms, but I even got to the point where I don't even want to think about the terms liver channel, kidney channel, lung channel. And, and I'm forcing myself to just think tie in, shall you enjoy it? You know, those, those, mm -hmm. those the great channels. It, it's, it's kind of just an experiment. I mean, I'm just thinking to myself, it's, but it's where I'm drawn. It's just, okay. What if I just palpate those levels from head to toe and, what, oh, just a step back. One thing I was discovering. So when I learned Ren Ying Song Kuo pulse taking from the Neijing studies with Ed Neal, I said, okay, I have no idea about this, but I'm going to, I'm just for a year, 
I'm going to take this pulse on everybody. You know, that, I think that's one way to open up to a new approach is stick with your old approach, but do the new approach 10,000 times first and then uh, allow yourself to see what emerges. And I discovered something really interesting. I found, I don't know if, you know, I don't know if we have to get into explaining Ren Ying Sung co-pulses, but I found that when I took it on the left side of the patient, on their left Ren Ying Sung co, and then I walked around and took it on the right side, that not always, nothing I ever say is always, but, but surprisingly often, one side would reveal one of the six levels, let's say Yang Ming, and then if the left side revealed Yang Ming to be predominant, the right side would reveal Tai Yin. If the left side revealed Xiaoyang, the right side would, re- would reveal Jue Yin. If the left side revealed Taiyang, the right side would reveal Xiaoyin, which if you're quick with those terms, you'd realize, wow, that's an interesting yin-yang mirroring where bladder, small intestine, kidney, heart. Mm-hmm. Gallbladder, triple warmer, liver, pericardium. Uh, stomach, large intestine, lung, spleen. And I just kept finding this. I found it so often that I started to question in the way we were describing earlier, where you're a reflective practitioner who's even willing to question yourself every day. I actually started to think, okay, is this an artifact of the way I'm taking pulses? Like, this can't be real. Is this an artifact? And so I challenged myself. I thought, okay, when I'm standing on the patient's left, I'm actually taking their Ying pulse with my right hand and their Sunko with my left hand. And when I'm standing on their right side, I'm taking their Ren Ying with my left hand and their Sunko with my right hand. Maybe this is an artifact of differential sensitivities of my two hands and has nothing to do with them. You know, I freaked out. So, so I, I, I tested that and, and I, I proved to myself that wasn't the case. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. And then how did you test it? I switched. uh, What did I do? I can't remember now. I'll have to look it up in the paper. I think I just switched my hands around somehow. I did some kind of gymnastics with patients, reached over and checked their pulses a different way. Um, but then, the, so the other layer to this, which actually was part of the testing, was that, see, at the same time with Kiko, I'm palpating all their channels down on, on their extremities. 
Okay, I'm palpating all these channels on their hands and feet. And what I was finding was that there was a match. Not always, for sure not always, but often enough to be very significant and undeniable. There was a match between what I was palpating on the extremities of their channels and what I was finding in this yin-yang pairing of left and right Ren Yang Sun Co pulses. And that's what blew my mind. That would get your attention, wouldn't it? And that led me down the path of, and this is going to be a little sacrosanct because what's the word when you, you know, I mean, Kiko, I revere Kiko so much in her work and I followed it for years, but I started to play a little bit with the Kiko protocols and merge them. Are you a little off the reservation here now? <laughs> I moved off the reservation, <laughs> uh, you know, and that's dangerous territory. But anyway, I did. And I started to just, I just started with those patients where this was clear to re-jade the, the Kiko protocols to to stay within one of the three channel, what I call channel quartets. Okay, so so where it was clear with a patient, both through extremity channel palpation and Ren Ying's Sun Ko pulse taking, where it was clear, which I would say was 60 to 70% of my patients, I would endeavor to keep the treatment within either bladder, small intestine, kidney, heart, or stomach, large intestine, lung, spleen, or gallbladder, triple warmer, liver, pericardium. Mm -hmm. And Michael, when I started to do that, I, there's just no question. The, the treatments for those patients became so much more powerful that it actually started to adversely affect my business <laughs> because, because people were getting better more profoundly and faster. And there's just no question about it. I mean, someone who would have taken me 8, 10, 12, 15 treatments, they'd come back after three, four or five treatments and say, I think we're done. I'm all better. Wow. That and it was happening. I mean, I couldn't, it's one of those things I, you know, I didn't do research. This is, of course, everything I'm saying is just my observations. And this is not to say I didn't have patients where this didn't work. I did. And I still do. But and I have com complicated patients, this just doesn't seem to fit. But it certainly ramped up the power of treatment a lot more often than it didn't. And along with that, I just pay less and less attention, this is going to sound blasphemous, to, to, to the symptoms they were reporting, to my knowledge of TCM. To, I, just, I mean, my intake is now, I've been this way for years, actually, my intake where we sit down and talk is somewhere between two and four minutes long. And then I get the patient on the table and I palpate. Wow. And I palpate and I palpate. And then I ask questions. If I palpate, I mean, here's a perfect example. Mm -hmm. Just the other day, a brand new patient in, she's here for anxiety and depression, severe. She was in the psychiatric unit of the hospital here for a month and a half recently. She's on six antipsychotic medications. She, I mean, this is a serious case, okay? And I'm palpating, and I'm checking channels, and her foot yang ming channel is just screaming at me. And you know, I finally say, what? What is up with your stomach? And she said, oh, I didn't tell you I had bariatric surgery three years ago and had 80% of my stomach uh, cut out, blocked, whatever they do. I, I, you know, That's just a really dramatic example. And that was just before all of her anxiety and, and depression started, by the way, which is very interesting. 
So what I do is I palpate and then I've, I've reverse engineered the whole process. I palpate first and then I ask questions. It's that shoot first, ask questions later or something. This totally makes sense. And actually a lot of the training that I've had, some of it has been palpatory based and palpate first, talk later makes a lot of sense. And the reason that it makes a lot of sense is because otherwise the mind gets involved first. You start hearing this or that, you're you're already down a rabbit hole. And it occurs to me too, I mean, symptoms are so interesting. Of course, people bring them in. It's the reason that they came in. They need a certain amount of attention, but they're not the whole show, right? I mean, we we've been trained in this. We know this. We are told endlessly by our teachers. And yet it's so inviting to go, oh yeah, that knee pain, that level of anxiety, let me just knock that down so you'll feel better. But so often the symptoms are actually artifacts. They're artifacts of something else. And if you take care of that something else, they just go away. Yeah. And then the question is, what is that something else? How do we identify that something else? And it's fearful. That for I don't know, for, certainly for me in the early stages of my practice, that evoked fear because it's like, oh, okay, I feel lost in space here. Uh, I don't know what to hang my hat on. How do I find that something else? So back to this idea of being a good, solid journeyman or journeywoman, my suspicion is we all need to go through that phase. Absolutely. We all need to go through that phase of whatever scaffolding we were given in school, which is helpful. I mean, I know a lot of people these days are poo-pooing TCM, where it's like, oh, that TCM, that communist, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, that that's not real medicine. It occurs to me, yeah. it gives us the fundamentals. It gives us a languaging. It gives us a perspective. I mean, if you know the language of, of I'm using air quotes, TCM, you can go anywhere in the world and talk to any practitioner about Chinese medicine. You can carry on a conversation. Yeah. You might have different ways of thinking about what you're doing, but we have a common vernacular. And, and I think that's not to be underestimated. You know, people would ask me, they go, oh, you went to, you know, less and such school. Did you get a good education? It's like, how would I know? It's the only school I went to, but I know this. Anywhere I've gone in the world, I've been able to talk to other practitioners of Chinese medicine and understand what they were talking about. So it was probably good enough. But the idea that we're going to come out of school and be fully formed, that's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, because I think we do have to go through this making it our own, this puzzling through, holy smokes, this stuff didn't work the way the, the book said. Now what do I do? And of course, that's very antithetical to the cultural matrix we're in which wants everything standardized and you go to med school you know what do you mean make it your own you've learned you know i mean doctors have become technicians they have to follow protocols you have these three symptoms and these three levels on your blood test it's this medication and if they don't they're under you know litigious pressure and right well i had a patient the other day it's the first time this has happened it was a little bit of a surprise but <laughs> actually someone who works in the pharmaceutical industry now that I think about it. Um, I mentioned that 
you know, I'd like to get you back in here. It's going to be a few weeks before I can because I'm headed out of town for a week to go do some study. And this person looked at me and goes, you mean you don't have this down yet? (laughs) Yeah. Which to you and I is very funny. Yeah. This person was dead serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have it down yet? And I think there is also that part in ourselves that goes, what, I don't have this yet? You know, it's there. I mean, it, it, is, it, it may be a quiet voice. We may not want to listen to that voice. But I think it's also there. When am I going to finally feel like I've got this enough that I can feel comfortable? Yeah, and in, and in the world I'm speaking about, or we're speaking about, that's the day you've actually died. <laughs> that's the day the process has just ended. Yeah. How do you manage to sort of keep your feet under yourself, so to speak, while at the same time recognizing that there is not much solid ground to stand on? That's a great question. Um, I think the, the it's a one-word answer, trust. I've always trusted, I don't know, I mean, I just, part of my own personal life, but I've just, I've, oh, I've, there have been times in my life I've jumped off cliffs, man, with no no safety ropes and um but for some reason i've always been guided by this trust that i'm doing the right thing so it'll work out leap of faith yeah i mean hey i have days in clinic even uh, you you must have these i mean we've been in practice 20 years plus i still have days in clinic where i i just think i have no idea what i'm doing today i'm lost well i i can tell you there's a little difference between my, I don't know what I'm doing today, and my 20 years ago, I don't know what I'm doing today. And that is a, a little compassion for that part. And it's like, that's okay. I don't know is a great place to begin. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't mean end. I don't know doesn't mean end. Throw your hands up. It's like, oh, here's a place to begin. Here's a place to learn something. Yeah. We can go a little deeper into this, but I mean, I have my own understanding of this from reading a, a lot is that we're fundamentally dealing here with the same conundrum people have been facing forever. And that's as you drill down deeper and deeper and deeper into reality, whether you're a high level physicist or astronomer or acupuncturist or meditator or whoever you you come to the realization at the bottom of it all there's nothing but here up on the surface where we're all living there's to use the number we like in chinese philosophy there's 10,000 things and so those 10,000 things are all the symptoms but they come from nothing and We'll never. I think. I think we will never crack that nut of how do you get from nothing to so much? Like how? How does that happen? I think. I mean, there's there's philosophers <laughs> trying trying to crack that nut forever, and we live. Most of us live in our daily worlds with our houses and our our mortgages and our cars and our refrigerators and our acupuncture needles, and we, we don't think about it. We just. We just live in the world of 10,000 things and we go about doing our 10,000 things and responding to our 10,000 things. And we have our, our ideas that if I do this, I cause that and blah, blah, blah. But, but all these 10,000 things are coming from nothing. 
I'm, this is where I'm getting to in my synthesis of acupuncture, is that just above nothing, but before, well before the 10,000 things, there are what various traditions have called archetypes. Okay, so whether it's astrology or Greek mythology or Ch Chinese mythology or whatever, there are these things we call archetypes. And they are a very deep, primal expression of, 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 of characteristics, of flavors, of moods, of colors, before they become really material things. And I think the six channel, the six levels are like that. They're archetypal. They're, they're flavors, they're colors, they're characteristics, but they're not yet at the point of specific symptoms. In fact, they're so not yet there. They're, they're what I heard an astronomer, a astrologist, <laughs> that's a bad confusion, an astrologist recently called multivalent. So in other words, the Taiyin or Shaoyin or Shaoyang are so multivalent at the archetypal level that when they express at the symptom level, they can express as almost anything. Not almost anything. I mean, if you study astrology, you know that an Aquarian or a Virgo or a Sagittarian, there are things that are definitely not Sagittarius and definitely are Virgo or whatever. But but the the, the multivalency of possible expressions is very broad. And I, th I think that's true of the six levels. You see what I'm, does that make sense? I think it does. Let me, let me run with this a little <laughs> I bit. Mean, I, I really went out on a limb there, but yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Let's, let's, let's try not to saw it off here, but, uh, but it's not, it's not crazy philosophy. I think it's really pragmatic what I'm saying. Well, I think it is pragmatic, especially if you're a practitioner. Yeah. Um, you know, we, there's this great phrase that everybody knows, but I doubt most of us understand about how does that go? There's the one, the one becomes a two, and the two becomes a three, and the three becomes yeah. a 10,000 things. We go, oh, isn't that lovely? What the hell does that mean? Right? So you've just pointed something up here. You say there's nothing, there's a 10,000 things, there's something in between. I think we all know there's something in between. Yeah. That's, that's where it gets really woogity, right? That's where you can get religion. That's where you can get dogma. That's where you can get insight, enlightenment. Who knows, right? I mean, there's something juicy in that, in between that sort of quantum level. Is it in a, you know, is it an electron or is it a field? Is it a wave? Is it a particle, right? There's this place where things kind of, they go from nothing into a potentiality that can become a something. Yeah. and Thinking about the six levels as these archetypical structures, you know, we often talk about the or the five phases. or the five phases, right? And then, yeah. you know, often people talk about the eight extras as these kind of structures that hold things. So I, I think there's a lot of ways to talk about it. I don't think it's like oh, this equals that, but I'd say there's different languaging and different ways of, of recognizing there's a nothing and then something comes into something. And we've got lots of different ways of exploring that. The thing that I like about the six levels in this conversation today, number one, and, and I want to get into this a bit more with your palpation and what you're actually doing, 
But this thing about the six levels, this keeps bumping. I keep bumping up against the six levels thing, right? I mean, first in acupuncture school, oh, here's the six levels. Disease gets transmitted a certain way. And then you got the, you got the Dreyin, which, you know, is the end and it goes into something. Well, what does it go into? Nobody ever said anything about that in acupuncture school. Oh, it's the end where yin and yang separate and that's it. Well, isn't there a cycle here? What just happened? So I, you know, I came out of school with that question. Years later, I go reading Dr. Hushi Shu and he kind of reorders the six levels. Yeah. And you get the Xiaoyang. What does it pivot into? It's the pivot. We talk about it as the pivot, right? What does it pivot into? It pivots into Jiyun. Oh. Well, if you look at like liver and gallbladder, it's really obvious, isn't it? If you look at pericardium and triple burner, yeah. Oh, it's right in front of our noses. How did we miss it? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I hear you talking about the six levels as archetypes, and I'm thinking, well, that has some potential. Yeah. By archetype, I just mean, what do I mean? I mean, this has been, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a novice in that game, but a complex that's so diverse in how it can actually manifest at the super, at, you know, up here at the surface of symptoms and so forth, signs and symptoms that, you know, it's, it's, it can appear to be vague and mushy. It's not, but it can appear that way. Oh, it absolutely appears that way. And my suspicion is it has to do with how we, are attuning ourselves to that particular, I'm going to call it resonance. Yeah, exactly. How we attune ourselves to it. Because if you can kind of tune into it, like you, I was going to say tune in a radio, but I'm totally dating myself because remember when you tuned in a radio by turning a knob, no, nobody does it anymore. You push a button, it goes right to it. Um, but for those of you old enough to understand what we're talking about, it's kind of like tuning in that, you tune in the frequency, there's a lot of information in it. Yeah. Yeah. And you're tuning in and through palpation. Yeah. And then, you know, I'll give someone a Tai Yin Yang Ming treatment and they'll come back in two weeks and say, oh my God, not only did what I came for get better, but all of this other stuff got better. Yeah. God, my wife got nice to me. I don't know. How'd that happen? <laughs> <laughs> I got nice to my wife. Yeah. yeah. Um, can you run us through, give us an example of a patient or a conglomerate, just to give us an idea of what it is that you're attending to when you put your hands on people. How are you picking up, ooh, tie-in? And then what a, a tie-in treatment would look like. I'm still very rooted in Kiko style. So I don't know I don't know if you or your listeners, you know, there'd be different people here familiar with it and not familiar with it. But I still, my treatments are still very rooted in the, the what's called the Matsumoto Nagano style, very much so. So in my particular case, someone lies on the table, I palpate their abdomen because that was the original core of her whole system. And then I palpate the extremities, in particular, fire point out to Jingwell point of all of the channels. And and what are you palpating for? Okay, so this is also a process. You know, in the in the in my first years of doing that, I would just press areas and I'd look at the patient and say, does this hurt? Does this hurt? Is this tender? Is that tender? Uh, because that's how you start. Because you don't yet know 
you don't yet have any palpatory expertise yourself. So you got to just press things and say, does this hurt? Does this hurt? Which is very, very important and valuable information. And But then what, what I would find emerged over a few years of doing that hundreds and hundreds of times was that I could actually tell if it would hurt even before I asked them. Because you could feel, is it hard? Is it tight? Is it mushy? Is it empty? Is it, you know, you could feel all the qualities of the skin and the subcutaneous tissue yourself. Yeah, you built your palpatory vocabulary. <laughs> so, you know, it, so you get to this phase where you ask them, but you already know the answer. And sometimes you're wrong, but 90% of the time you're right. And then you even get to the point where it even gets more subtle and you can almost just look at it and know. So in other words, it's a process of getting attuned to more and more and more nuanced signals. But I still do all of it because, first of all, it involves the patient, uh, which is really important because it's really valuable for the patient to see that you press an area and it hurts like hell. And then you do the treatment and you go back. This is a hallmark of the Kiko approach. You go back and repalpate it and it doesn't hurt at all. all right. That's a great super experience for the patient they get to okay this is real stuff something's really happening here <laughs> so uh, evidence-based yeah that's that's where my evidence-based protocols sit and uh, and it's also great for you to experience that because sometimes you do treatments and nothing changes and that's information okay but the other thing that i find interesting is that when you palpate an area an extremity there's three or four different kinds of uh, scenarios there you press and the patient says like you let's say you press a point you press uh, i don't know liver two which is the fire point on the liver channel and the patient screams ow oh, that hurts and you also feel that it's very tight so uh, you agree then there's another case where you press and you feel like this is gonna really hurt because i can feel the tension here i can feel how taut it is and the patient says, no, that doesn't hurt. So that's that's interesting. And then you have the one where the patient, so, so there's also two ways the patient can tell you something will hurt. There's with their, with, their, <laughs> with their mouth, and then there's with their body. And it gets really interesting. You know, you see this a lot with guys, you know, this sort of bravado thing where, you know, they'll say, no, that doesn't hurt, but their body will writhe in pain. And, you know, you know that's interesting. So there's many different, and, and then there's even this, then there are much more subtle levels where you barely touch the point and you can feel the chi and you can feel this. So so there's, there's a lot of things going on in the process of palpation, but I'll just do that. I'll palpate their whole front. I'll also observe things, looking at, you know, where are their birthmarks? Where are their moles? Where is their... You know, where are their spider veins? Where all, all that goes into this as well, observation and palpation. And often, like I say, what I'll find is so much of this patient's expression through palpation fits in, you know, for example, Xiaoyang Joy In. And so I will treat mostly using Kiko type approaches but a few other things that I tend to add on points on those four channels and you do that. And then you go back and palpate and everything has relaxed. Everything, you know, if you, if you've got it right, all the points of tension are relaxed, 
you know, you hear the patient's stomach gurgling right away, which, you know, that's the parasympathetic nervous system saying, thank you. And they go into a sleep and you come back 20 minutes later and then you turn them over on their back and you find, you know, then I palpate the back and you find the same, you find corroboration of everything you found on the front. I mean, that's, I'm describing a perfect case. In recent years, this Om acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I have been sort of clued into the six levels here. Yeah. For a period of time, not that I really understand them that much, but that there's a lot there and they keep drawing my attention. And I find that I increasingly have different ways of looking at them and working with them. Yeah. And, and well, oh, the other thing is, of course, I find often this corroborates with the Renying Sunko pulses, which I find very fat. Isn't that fascinating? Like palpating the channels and taking those pulses often is leads to corroboration i find that fascinating and i want to stress that i'm not doing any of this based on theory based on my cerebral understanding of the six levels at all i'm kind of i'm in a long-term personal experiment if you will and this involves a lot of trust and a lot of leap of faith on my part but i i just feel driven to do it this way to avail myself of the process I just described repeatedly, thousands and thousands of times over 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. And what I'm assuming will happen is that I will back out an understanding of the six levels that will corroborate what's written about them. But I will arrive at it myself. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'm starting to get there. Like I I went to see a Jason Robertson seminar in in Boston a couple of years ago. It was my first exposure to him, and I sat there and I was fascinated because I sat there for two days and listened to him. It was beautiful, and eighty percent of what he said, I said, "Oh yeah, I figured that out. Oh yeah, I found that." And I wasn't being arrogant or ego. I was just saying it to myself. I just kept saying, "Well, this is cool because I discovered that myself." I understand what you're saying. I I have at times gone to a class or sat in on a clinic with somebody and they'll say something and I'm not, and I find myself not taking notes. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, I knew that. 
because <laughs> because it's like, oh yeah, that that makes sense. Great. I can just like put a little check mark. Somebody else has noticed that too. I follow you know, and I just like nod my head on the inside and go, I follow what you're saying. Yeah. I don't need to write a note to myself, what does that mean? Or this means that. It's like, oh yeah. I spent a few summers in a meditation retreat with a meditation teacher and everybody you know, he'd give these beautiful talks. And you know, your first impulse is to take out your notebook and take notes, right? And and he would always say, "Put away your book and just trust." And that taught me a lot. You know, why do we want to take notes? We want to take notes because we 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 don't trust that we get it or we'll get it. Or your approach of learning this stuff so that you can come back and go, "Oh yeah, that that's right. They wrote about that. I I get that." I resonate with that a bit. I, I first went to acupuncture school because I was curious about it. it. helped me and I and I got curious and I started following it. When I first began, I didn't, I, I totally gave myself permission to bail at any moment Right. if I decided it wasn't for me. I mean, it took a while before I decided, oh yeah, this is for me. But I can remember in school, especially in those first few months we were reading about the channels and we're reading about the points and this does that and this goes there. And I'd be thinking to and all my classmates were like, oh yeah, the, the lung channels like this or this, this stomach point, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be thinking, somebody just wrote that in a book. I mean, anyone could write anything in a book. How do I know that this shit is real? Yeah. And it wasn't until I started getting into clinic and I put a needle in a place and there'd be a propagation of sensation. The patient would say, oh, I feel that down in my thumb. And I'd be like, well, that's, that's interesting. That, that, co- you know, that, cor- that corroborates what the book said. Now I'm starting to trust the book a little more. Yeah. Yeah, there's that thing of, of using the source materials, but also somehow being able to know it on the inside and not know it with our head and not know it with theory. Right. But know it through a kind of experience. And I would never say I'm there, but it's risky because, you know, I could be barking up a wrong path completely. Oh, well, I mean, how many, how many wrong paths have you gone down in your life? Yeah. But, you know, but this is a, you know, this is with patience, right? You're not, you're, mm-hmm. you, you, I mean, that's the other thing, of course, that's scary about all of this is that we have a responsibility in every moment to the person on the table in front of us. That'll keep you focused. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, what you just described, you know, it's the same thing with, I mean, think about chemistry. You took your first chemistry class. They're telling you about F orbitals and D orbitals. And I mean, you can't see them. It's just a book. Somebody wrote it. You, I mean, I, I think in any subject, you have to take on leap of faith initially what you're being told, and but then, then hopefully you corroborate it with your experience. Yeah. Well, I, I, I suspect, again, I'm, I'm coming back to that theme that I threw out earlier in the show that this is what makes for a good practitioner. This is what makes for a good journeyman, that we hone and refine our craft over countless encounters yeah and then and then maybe every 10 years you do something crazy and throw out what you're doing and try something new oh man yeah that's well that for me is also one of the big questions about what do you do when you're you're learning something new 
and you start to realize that some ways that you've worked before just they don't help as much as they used to. You know, it's like how do you make that shift from something that you've known before and you've trusted and has created stability for you? Yep. How do you let that stuff go when it's time to let it go? I think that's a great question. Yeah, I don't have an answer. I do not have an answer. I'm telling you, those of you that are listening to this, if you've got an idea, email me. <laughs> I'd love to hear it. Well, and one of the dangers with acupuncture, well, you can call it a danger or you can call it a great thing, but you know, let's face it, you, you could needle stomach 36, spleen 6, liver 3, and large intestine 4 on everybody. And most people would love you. So that's one of the tricky things about acupuncture is you, you, I mean, you can mess up, you can make people feel worse, but there's, there's a lot of leeway for just, you, there's a lot of ways to get, have people feel better with acupuncture. Right. Well, and it raises the question for me, are we helping people feel better or, or are we helping them be better? Yeah. Because you can build a very successful practice with a lot of patients. Totally. By helping them feel better. But like you said, you started paying attention to your palpation and working the six levels in a different way, and it adversely affected your cash flow. <laughs> it actually did. My, my, my patient load started to dip because people were getting better faster. Mm-hmm. Which, which led me to an interesting observation. You know, people think if the doctor's really busy and hard to get into, they must be a really good doctor. And to, to which I respond, or, or maybe they're a really bad doctor and nobody's getting better. <laughs> yeah, it's the stuff we have to sort out, isn't it? Here's an interesting question. How many of us, so a patient comes to you with a problem, they come for four or five visits, they feel better, they go away. How many of us get to ask them a year later if they still feel better? That's a good point. You know, or sometimes they go away after three treatments. We don't know why they went away. Right. Uh, My usual thought is, well, I I guess that wasn't helpful. They're somewhere else. And then like five years, they show up again. (laughs) You changed my life. Yeah. You know, that back pain went away and, you know, but now I got this other thing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I'm like, man, but, but we don't know. And that's, you know, that might even be a deficiency that we could correct in some ways with some kind of follow up. Yeah, I don't know. What do you do? Call people a year later? Well, you know, sometimes you'll you'll see things like in the in the Chinese literature with case studies, and you know they'll talk about how they did this and did that, and then it failed, and then they changed the formula, and then the patient got better, and then when they checked in six months later, they were still better. I mean, you, you, that's often in those kinds of case studies. Yeah, but I think in a small village, small community context, that's very easy to do. I mean, I'm lucky. I live in a city of forty thousand people, so. I'm I'm really lucky because I very often run into people just in the grocery store a year later. And they're not limping, so you know they're helpful. Or they'll even come up to me and say, you know what you did a year ago? It hasn't come back. But if you're in a city of 5, 10 million people, I don't know how often that happens. Well, maybe you'd have to do follow-up. I mean, there's all kinds of people that say, you know, a good way to practice anyway is to go through your cases and people you haven't seen for a while, give them a call. <laughs> That's a thought. I mean, some people practice that way. I, I wouldn't myself, but but I would maybe want to call people just to see, did you get better? Yeah, it'd be an interesting exercise, wouldn't it? I wouldn't be able to do as many podcasts, I, or I could get someone else to do the calling, I guess, but nah, that wouldn't be the same. I'm kind of a hands-on guy. I wonder what we would find. 
It's a good question. You know, and, and again, hey, those of you that are listening to this conversation, if you do follow up with your patients like this, I'd like, I'd like to hear the kinds of things that you're, that you're hearing. You know, I, if I was doing something like that, I'd want to separate out, like, for example, simple things like, you know, knee pain or something with things like Crohn's disease or did they, if they got better, did it stay better? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, more stuff for us to do, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, Daniel, any other thoughts that you'd uh, like to toss out here before we wind this down for today? Um, I just really hope. I don't know whether to worry about our profession or not. I talked at the outset about those two streams, and I just hope there's a place in our profession for influence. You know, I, I, I mean, I especially worry about the whole evidence-based integrative thrust right now, because I know how seductive that is, and I know how hungry we are for that kind of validation and recognition. And it has a place, but I'm a little worried it's just going to become, you know, you know. there's that expression, you dance with the one who brung you. Uh, you know, I'm just worried we're going to wake up 10 years from now and we're going to have to, we're going to be constrained by insurance and law and all these influences to following protocols. Yeah, we would lose out a big chunk of the kind of learning that you and I have been discussing for the past hour that can come from being able to constantly inquire in the work we do. Yeah. And like your, but like that shocked patient said to you, you mean you don't already understand all of this? You know, there's, there's that part too. Like what you just said there, constantly inquire. Part of us feels like, how can you be doing medicine on people and constantly inquiring? Isn't are you supposed to inquire when you're in studying and then know what you're doing? There are people who could argue that's not ethical. You could make that argument, but here's the other thing: if things were that simple, and if that actually did work, then why are people showing up in our offices? Exactly. Because generally speaking, they've already been through a system that does that. It hasn't helped them. It might have even hurt them. That's a that's beautiful. And and in my experience, you know, the people who show up in my clinic, they they actually really appreciate. I mean, the people who want the quick answers and the, you know, the tried and true, they'll go to somebody else. But there are people out there who come to people like you and me and you know, they appreciate that this is an inquiry. They appreciate that we don't have all the answers. They appreciate that we're trying to help on a, I'll say it, deeper level, you know. Mm. That's why they're there. Yeah. Well, being a lazy human being, I like to try to get things done quick and simple as well. And if I can get it done that way, yes, sir, I'm doing it. But if that doesn't solve the problem, ugh. Now, you know, now you've got to dig into something else. I mean, the funny thing is, I mean, I'll just close with this, you know, this, where I am in that now with the six levels, it actually, if you were watching me in clinic, it seems ridiculously simple. Ooh, tell us more. <laughs> well, it just does. I mean, I get the patient on the table, palpate from head to toe, usually within about five minutes, ask a few questions to confirm this or that. Two minutes later, I have six or seven or eight needles in. My choices are pretty simple. 
in some ways, it simplified things. I'm not all over the place. I'm really honed in. I'm doing a Yang Ming Tai-in treatment. Bop, 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 bop. There you go. Well, it sounds like you've spent your past 20 years with some fruitful inquiry. Yeah, and tomorrow we have to drop it all and start again, right? <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> Great to talk with you. A delight as always. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.